we're going to have fun today because we're going to talk about curiosity. Curiosity revisited. You know curiosity as you taught your children, be curious and learn and do these things. I want to talk about curiosity in the workplace. How can we grow? Another word for curiosity might be the word think. Think again. There's a great book by Gary, um, what's Gary's last name? Adam Grant, uh, sorry. And he, he calls it uh, Think Again. It's a great book. Just finished it. But I like the word curiosity. Curiosity is a great word that we don't use in the workplace. And so today we are going to do that. So I want to give a definition of curiosity. Curiosity is a strong desire to know or learn. Well, we know that. Kids, you need to learn. You need to be curious. But in the workplace, it has to be attached to an action with it. So curiosity in the workplace is something you learn, uh, something you uh, gain knowledge with, and then you act upon it. Because if you don't act upon it, then it's just gaining more knowledge. We're all of the age that we don't need knowledge for knowledge's sake. We need to knowledge and we need to understand more and learn more so that we can use it and apply it and act upon it. And I believe if our people were more curious, more things would get done and more creative things would happen. Now, let me tell you what it's not. You know, the opposite of curiosity is incuriosity. Now, is that a tough word? Who cares about that? But let me give you what is not curiosity. It's not on your uh, worksheets. You don't need to write it down because they're so obvious. Here's some statements. That will never work here. If someone says that, they are not a curious person. That will never work here. Have you ever had someone say that? Have you ever said it? Yes, you have. That's not what my experience has shown. Now, that is an obvious statement of no curiosity because curiosity, by definition, is getting a new experience, learning something and doing something with it. So, hey, my experience. So people who say my experience has shown means that they have stopped at some certain point of learning. Could have been yesterday, it could have been three years ago, it could have been five years ago, it could have been a generation ago. You know, my experience is such that this won't work. Well, that is not the curious mind. We're going to hopefully break through that because someone who said this statement would not have been able to get through last year because nobody had the experience that we went through last year and are going through this year, have we? It's amazing. We have an organization here, we have a school, we have a church, we have nonprofits attached to us, we do a lot of things. And I go to other people and I go, you've been down this road longer than I have, give us some best practices. Well, this year, nobody has best practices the last 12 months. We are all new at this, which really has leveled the playing field between good and uh, big and small, between large and startup, because none of us have an experience about this. Another one is, that's too complicated, let's not overthink it. Now, that may be good at times, but that's also saying, you know, I don't want to have to really use my thinking. I don't want to be curious about this. Let's not overcomplicate. Let's just kind of do it the way we did it before. A couple other ones. That's the way we have always done it. Of course, that's like the killer of any creativity. And then here's the last one. We cannot solve this problem. With current thinking, you can't solve the problem, maybe. 
I mean, simple problems you can, recurring problems you can, but there are problems that every one of your businesses, every one of your nonprofits, every one of your, uh, we have politicians who are running government in here and running other organizations, trade unions and trade organizations here and economic councils here, and you can't solve this problem with old thinking. There are things you have to do. So today we're going to look at four types of curiosity in the workplace. Now, this can apply everywhere, but this is the workplace. We're talking about work today. So let's look at them. I'm going to list them out, all four, and then we're going to take the first two and do a little thinking on that, and then we're going to take the next two and do some thinking. So I'll walk through them quickly, and then we'll take the first two and spend some time and then spend some time with the other ones so we can kind of learn from this. The first is curiosity and confidence. That's confidence in what you do, who you are, how you do it in the workplace. That's kind of your confidence level or lack of confidence or overconfidence and the curiosity that is around that. The second, which is like it, is curiosity and competence. That's your abilities. And we're going to put together your confidence and your competence and talk about that in a few moments together. So I, I fuse those two together. The third is conflict, curiosity and conflict. How do you handle conflict in the workplace? And we're going to do, I'm going to take one aspect of conflict because conflict is huge, and I do a lot of conflict resolution issues and things like that. We're just going to take one piece of that because it could be, it, it could take hours to talk about that. Then the last one is curiosity and your conversations, your conversations with people. And some of those conversations are difficult uh, conversations. Some are easy conversations. I'm not talking about how was your weekend kind of conversations. I'm talking about work conversations. How are the kids? How are the grandkids? How's your daughter away at college? Those are good conversations, but with the curiosity of building your business. Does that make sense? So let's start. You have a graph in your, on your worksheet there, and the graph looks like this. It's got confidence on the y-axis, the vertical axis, low confidence, high confidence, and you have competence here on the x-axis or the horizontal axis, the low confidence here, high confidence here, and there are three sections to this graph. And all of us are on this graph at work. We might even move around this graph a lot. But we're either in this third or in the middle or in the bottom. And we're going to look at that. And so I'd like to start with the area of confidence. And we're calling this the armchair quarterback syndrome. Now, for those of you around the world, you don't know American football, so we'll call it the goalkeeper syndrome or the goalie syndrome. And that is, have you ever been to a high school basketball game? Okay, so I have five children. Four of them were athletes. One was in ballet. Okay, the fifth one was in ballet. That is fantastic. One event a year. It's in May. <laughs> one event. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. If your kid is in ballet, it's wonderful. Your grandkid, ballet. Okay, so basketball were the other four. They each do 20 to 30 games each. Now figure that out. You know, the summer in the Pee Wee League, summer in Boca Hoops, summer in middle school, high school, play college, two that play college basketball. Now you got to fly away. It's horrendous. 
to go to everyone's game. I loved every minute of it because I grew up in a gym. I played basketball as well, so I grew up there, and my parents had to do the same thing. But what do you know in a basketball? It could be in a basketball. It could be in volleyball gym. It could be in lacrosse. It could be in football. We call it the armchair quarterback syndrome, and that is, is that everybody in the stands is smarter than everybody on the court, right? The coach is an idiot. The referees are blind. The, opponent, the opponents are kicking my son or daughter and this and that, right? And then these parents have the gall to scream all that out, right? And they're screaming out. Now, I'll use basketball as an example uh, because I know it very well. Basketball is a very intricate sport. There's a lot. You go, oh, it's just dribble and shoot through the hoop. No, no, no. That's the simple part. There, it's intricate. And I would watch these parents... Thank God all my kids are grown up, so I don't have to go to these games anymore. But they, they would just scream and yell, and they were idiots. The idiots were not the referees. The idiots were not the coaches or the opposing player that's supposedly kicking or something. The idiots are the parents. Why? Because they think they know more than they really do. And the reason we call that is they have high confidence. I know what I'm doing they had no competence in knowing what they were actually saying. Their energy, their excitement, their anger was way up here. Their knowledge was almost non-existent. And most of the parents that knew something would sit with me and we would just talk about the game. And I would say when an, an opposing player against my son or daughter made a great shot, I'd go, great shot, because it's a great shot. <laughs> You know, great shot's a great shot whether my daughter or son made it or not, right? And so I would sit with the competent people, and we would just have a good time talking about the game, and not we'd scream when, you know, the score got up and, you know, just normal parent stuff. But people are over here. My question to you is, has your confidence exceeded your competence? And your curiosity, see, here we have these parents who have no knowledge, no learning, but they're acting. That's confidence. They are confident that they are right. And afterwards, they're saying things and all the rest. And it's wrong because confidence has to be attached to competence. Now, on the competence side, let's look at this. There's another syndrome, which is called the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome. And this is even worse because there are people that are highly effective in your businesses that say they are not or think they cannot do it. And people are held back because of comments that were made dozens of years ago from parents and uncles and aunts and other kids, and they, they feel like, I shouldn't even be here because I'm not good enough to do this job. I remember a few years ago, I went into, I did a couple graduate degrees. I'm kind of anal when it comes to school. And uh, so I was in this PhD program, and they only took 12 in the class a year to this program, 12. And this is what they would do. I think this has to be illegal, but they did it anyway. They gave you a provisional yes, but they wouldn't say it because if someone better than you came, you got bumped and they went in. So that your yes was a provisional until the last month. And they told you that 
there were 13 accepted in the last month, knowing that the 13th person would be dropped off, or if one of the 12 dropped out because of whatever, they had somebody already vetted. So we get there the first day. Now, this is a PA, these people are whiz kids. I was 45. They were all 25, 26. And you're doing a PhD at 26. You are the smartest people on the block. And we're all in this room, the 12 of us. And the professor comes in and goes, one of you was the 13th person. But I'm not going to tell you who it was. And all of us thought we were the 13th person. Everyone in the room thought we were the dumbest person in the room. We actually were so um, affected by it that we called our group. We went three years together. We called our group the imposters because we knew one of us was, and we didn't know who it was. See, we had a syndrome. These people were the most competent people. I mean, these uh, unbelievable. But we had this syndrome that we weren't. And there are people in your everything, your nonprofits, everywhere you work that can do more have more talent than they are really using. And if you can unlock their curiosity to realize their learning, their abilities, can move into action, you may have a team that is better than you think you have. You may have a group of people that are better than you think you have. You don't have to go out and hire other people right now when hiring is difficult or whatever and money is low. You can go, maybe we have the team here. You've got to unlock their curiosity and bring it together. Now, what is the middle one? Here's where we need to be. We need to have a right understanding of our confidence, a right understanding of our abilities, and when they come together, it's the word humility. Now, you say, I wouldn't pick the word humility. You might pick the word courage. You might pick another word that's around that confidence word, but it really is humility. What is humility? Let me give you the definition. It's on your sheet. Humility is the proper understanding of your gifts, talents, and skills and the ability to use them in the best way to help you and your team. Okay, we're talking about work here. So your company or even your family, whatever. Most people think humility is modesty. Humility is, um, I'm not that good. I'm not, that's not humility, this false deprecation, whatever it's called. That is not humility. So let's talk about it. Let's go. Um, well, let me give you two thoughts on that. Thank you for going ahead. This is not in your notes, but it's important to understand. If you have a proper understanding of humility, you have a belief in yourself. That's the confidence. I believe in myself, which gives you security. You are secure in who you are versus insecurity. How many people at work and go, they're just always, I, I need affirmation. I don't think I'm doing a good job. I need more. We all need affirmation. We all need, hey, great job. But there are some who can't, are immobilized if they're not always affirmed and always, and you go, enough already. Let's get to work because they have no security in who they are. A humble person has total security in who they are. And the second is they have a belief in their tools. I use the word tools to keep the word neutral. Their God-given gifts, their God-given talents, their education, their money, their family, their, all the things they have. You can put any word in here you want, and that will give you certainty versus uncertainty. So we have people working for us that are insecure and uncertain at what they're doing. 
They're insecure of who they are and uncertain that they're doing a good job. And what we need to do is unleash their curiosity so that they understand that, hey, I can be secure in who I am because I'm not you. My gifts and talents are different than your gifts and talents. And I can be certain, and the beautiful thing is, and you hear me say this all the time, that if you don't like your job, if you're in the wrong job, get another job. I don't mean necessarily leave the company, but you got to be curious enough to know that if you hate what you're doing, you got to move into something you like doing. You just got to move into it. And I've told people to leave their job. I won't tell you uh, owners here that, but I've told people to leave their job if they feel insecure and uncertain. We need people who are secure and certain. Now let's look at the graph again. So now let's take a couple minutes at our tables. Where are you on this graph? Now, some of you are with your team, so it's a little hard to be honest. Some of you are with your spouse, a little hard to be honest. Some of you are with people you don't even know and you just met 15 minutes ago, so it's hard and am I going to be vulnerable to someone I've never even met? So let's, let's be a little curious with each other and let's not be afraid and let's kind of step out and put a mark where you're at. Where are you? And you go, well, I'm in different places at different time, and you're absolutely right. But today, where are you? Where are you? Highly confident, a little nervous about my competence in this job I have, or do you really feel you're on all eight cylinders? So what I want to look at, as you look at this, if you are up here, let's say you're way up here somewhere. Is anybody up here? Don't be embarrassed. Is anybody? Oh, you're not being honest with me now. Okay, so everybody's afraid because you know I'll say something bad about you. And you're right, I will. Okay. <laughs> this is where the proud people are. Pride. What is pride? Pride is where confidence has overridden competence. You're a little ahead. And haven't you ever, ever said these words? Yes, you have. So this one you'll have to raise your hand on. But you call these people arrogant. And arrogance is this. Arrogance is the distance between their pride and where they should be. That's what arrogance is. He's a little arrogant. She is really arrogant. It's the distance from where they should be because you see the blind spots. They don't. And where they are. So pride is up here and the distance is arrogance. Now how many are down here? Raise your hand. Oh, don't tell me everybody is humble in this room. <laughs> I got to define it a little tighter. It says 10% of the room is humble. Okay, the people down here have this false sense of humility. See, false humility is the distance between when I'm over here, if I'm highly competent and I keep saying, no, I can't, I'm not that good, I'm not that good. What am I doing? I'm doing two things. One is I'm fishing for a compliment number one, and number two is I'm pushing you down. See, pride pushes people down. I'm better than you are. I'm stronger. You know, I do a better job than you, John. I'm better than you. I'm proud. So I push you down. But false humility does the exact same thing. And I'll give you a quick example. My friend Clay, who's in here, is a phenomenal piano player. Phenomenal. I love the piano. I love listening to piano. I'm the guy you want in the audience in the piano concerts. I go to all these things. I love them. I appreciate it. And I am only a fair piano player, just who I am. I don't have all the gifts. I have some talent that I've struggled through, but I get it. 
Now, if Clay, after I hear him play something incredible, I, I go to him, great job, and he goes, it was nothing. Right? Isn't that a response we always say? Oh, it was nothing. I know it was something. So if it was nothing, what he has done is he shoved me down. See, pride is me going like this. Right? I'm proud. False humility is, this, is making me go like this. And see, the distance is still there. You are distancing people either because you are falsely being um, modest or whatever. The reality is that what he did was good and was incredible and was better than I could do. And there's nothing wrong with accepting that. And if you do a good job, there's nothing wrong with accepting that you are good at it. There are things that you are brilliant at that I can't do. Does that make you a better person? No, we're not talking about human value here. We're talking about work value. And some things that your people do are so incredible, and you as a leader got to go, great job, and it is not acceptable to go, it was nothing. Because a great job is something. And we have to teach our people to move up here, and ourselves, to move up here to the right understanding of our abilities. And once we do that, it's amazing what will happen. Because then we can go, great. I mean, I could, I could just point people right now. I won't do it. I could point to 30 of you in this room that have done an incredible thing for me. Your, your uh, vendors that I've used and my organizations have used. I can just go, thank you. You did a great thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And all of you can't just go, oh, it was nothing. Because you did something I can't do. You did something our company can't do. You did something our church can't do. You did something, does that make sense? This is where we're going with this. Humility is a beautiful thing. And so you go, well, I'm new at the job. I don't have a lot of confidence. You can be down here with your humility. Or if you've been and you know, you can be way up here in your humility. That's why it moves along. You can be very confident and very competent, but stay in the humble zone. Now, let's go quickly. We just got a few minutes left to the last two. I'm going to look at the last one first. So down on the bottom right, we'll go to curiosity and conversation. How not to do it. I'll give you a couple of negatives. They're there. There's one typo in it, so I'll explain it. So you're in, the, you're in your workforce. You're doing something, and there's a problem, and you don't want to be curious. you just in the conversation. You have no interest in being curious. And there's opportunity there. You go, let's just forget about the problem. That's an incurious person. That is the wrong way to do it. You go, we've got a problem. Here's the problem. Let's deal with it. Let's figure this out. Let's be curious about it. Maybe you and I can figure it out. Maybe we've got to bring someone else to figure it out. Whatever it is, the problem may not get cured. Maybe you still do have to fire the person. Maybe you still do have to um, lower your budget. Maybe there are things, but you at least are trying. Another bad one is this. I have personal peace about the situation. This is like, makes me so mad. We've got a problem here. We've got an issue in front, and someone goes, well, I'm okay with it. We've got a personal piece about it, or whatever version you use. It's just not acceptable in the workplace. The third one is really not acceptable. Let's agree to disagree. Now, when it comes to other things, like politics, or this or that, or global warming, or should we fight for $15, for minimum, yeah, okay, let's agree, let's disagree with each other and agree. But in business, in our firm, if we just go, I say this, you say it, let's just agree to disagree. I say this, you say that, let's agree to disagree. I say this, you say that, let's agree to disagree, and all of a sudden you don't have a company. 
because you're always just going, oh, we just disagree with everybody. You've got to f- work through this situation. Fourth, and this is a typo. These two words should be flipped. I apologize. It's totally my fault, not my team's fault, because I had them switch it last night because I was thinking wrong uh, of it. Become a peacekeeper is wrong rather than a peacemaker. So I'm sorry it should be flipped because we're doing the negative here. This is a positive statement, but it's in a negative list. So you really want to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Write it in any way you want. Peacekeepers just keep the peace. Peacemakers make peace and re-engage people, and it takes curiosity to do it. You've got to learn. You've got to understand. You've got to act on it. And then the final one, let's go back one, is... I'll agree not to destroy you if you agree not to destroy me. That's the old detente way of solving problems. Remember detente, for those of you who are my age, a generation ago, when Russia could have destroyed, the Soviet Union could have destroyed the West, and the West could have destroyed the East, and they kind of had this agreement between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev that we won't destroy you if you don't destroy us. And that is not resolution. That is not a conversation. There are things we've got to work through that. This this is sad to say where a lot of marriages are. We're going to keep the marriage together, and I just won't destroy you. You don't destroy me, and we'll wait till the kids get out of school, and then we'll figure this thing out. That is not a good way to solve this thing. Be curious. Figure this thing out. Now let's go to the last one real quick. Curiosity and conflict, and I want to use negotiation as an example, as a case study. I didn't say sales because most of you are not in sales. A few of you are. All of us are in negotiations. If you're in business, you negotiate. You negotiate with your team. You negotiate with outside vendors. You negotiate with your boss. You negotiate with your employees. Everything is a negotiation. And so how do you have a curious mind in these things? Because usually conflict occurs. Four things, and this is very important. So... If you're just kind of circling, what should I remember for the day? That graph and one of these four. Common ground is the easiest way to negotiate. In other words, I have something that you want. You want to pay for it. Common ground. Uh, Why do we want clients to return to us? Because there's common ground. I have an owner of a golf course here. When his... The golfers come back the second, third, fourth, fifth time. There's common ground. They know the course. They love the course. They play the course. We have people, and so we have uh, people that are salespeople. When your clients come back, there's common ground. You know, I like what you did. That is the easiest. That's a win, win, win. It works for all. It's easy. I trust you. I have common ground. I have the same insurance guy that I've had for 30 years. Why? Because there's common ground. And when common ground stops, you go find someone else. That's the easiest. So let's go to the hard ones. The second way is this. Proof and reason. You are fighting for your life on this. You're going to negotiate and it's a debate. It becomes a debate. Now, have you ever been in a debate? My daughter was in the debate club at Boca High. I was um, a judge. So uh, that was terrible. Hey, Dad, will you drive me down to Nova and be a judge? Yes. Okay. So you do this. What happens in a debate? There's a winner and there's a loser. Every debate has a winner and a loser. There are no ties in debates. Winner, loser. When you negotiate, 
this way. I'm going to prove to you that what I'm doing is the best and the right and the only and all the rest. I may win the debate. But that means the other person has lost. And they may pay me for whatever that is, but I'm not going to see them the next time. Because people do not like to lose. There is a feeling of not liking to lose. And if I lost the debate in this negotiation, I would not come back to it again. Would you? Absolutely not. So debates are bad. Someone wins, someone loses. It's the old-fashioned win-lose situation. The third one is even worse. This is the defend and attack mode. Have you ever, been, and, and you just start, there's an attack going on. They're attacking your company. They're attacking your person. They're attacking your boss. You're attacking their boss. It's a war. So we move from a debate. Here's all the reasons you should do this or shouldn't go somewhere else, and there's a winner or loser. Here it's war. And I tell you what, everyone loses in a war in business. If you are a warring person in your business, it is a lose lose scenario. You might win the battle. You might get that client. You might get him or her to pay you, but they are long gone. You have destroyed the relationship. Everyone in this context is either a friend or an enemy. Oh, you work for them? You work for that company? You work for, you know, you must be a part of the enemy. Everything is in terms of these military terms, and it's not good. So what is the right way to do it? Well, the first one is the right way, if it's easy, common ground. But here's the way. Johnny, you brought it back up. It, come, it was the end of my talk last week, last month. Ask questions and listen. And this is dancing. You have debate, doesn't work. You have war, doesn't work. You have setting a platform for a dance. And people go, what do you do, Bill, at Boca Lead? I try to set a platform for people to come together and get to know each other, right? It's a dance. You are meeting people because you're in this room and you're getting to know people and people that want to be more ethical and have more character and do things for this community and make this a better place to live, work, play, and worship and raise a family. And we're doing it together because we're creating a platform for success. And when you do that, it's a win-win. Hey, let's make this work together. Can we? And then what happens is when you do that, you go back to common ground, and then it's like picking low-lying fruit. You know, our mango tree in the side of the yard, those low ones you can just grab, and then the tough ones, the high ones are tough. And so I encourage you, ask questions to learn. Listen, and you will create an opportunity of curiosity that people will go, yeah, I want to do business with her. I want to do business with you. And it's a great opportunity. Our time is up. I want to close with a quick thought. So I've been reading about wildfires lately. And uh, trying to understand firefighters and wildfires. We get fires in buildings, you know. And, you know but here in, we, we have a few wildfires in Florida, but not the ones like they have in the West. So I've been reading it. And what's interesting is they, um, they airlift firefighters into the middle of these very, very incredibly dangerous situations. And there they are. And there's a time to fight the fire, and there's a time not to fight the fire. And they, f they come in with a backpack. And in that backpack are chainsaws. I mean, you know how much a chainsaw weighs if you've got to carry it? And shovels, and sometimes dynamite, and all kinds of things to fight a fire. And then, every so often, the wind changes, and they've got to stop fighting the fire, and they've got to move, and they've got to run. 
and you find out that a lot of firefighters die in that situation. And when they find these people, these men and women, they discover they still have their backpacks on. They have 30, 40, 50 pound backpacks and the ones who made it up the hill to safety where the wind has changed took their backpack off and ran like they could because you can run faster without a 40 or 50 pound backpack on. And this is, I'm going, this can't be true. And time after time, some of the biggest fires over the last 30, 40 years that they've been studying deaths of firefighters and wildfires, most of them have died because of their backpacks or whatever they're carrying. They have them all everywhere. And they're running against time, and, and we're talking seconds now, to get to safety, and they won't get rid of their shovel or the chainsaw or that pack of dynamite and all those things and those explosives to try to make troughs to kind of make all those trenches to stop the moving fire. They keep them on. Why? Because they were taught in firefighter school 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, you never get rid of your backpack. But there is times when you got to get rid of the backpack. And I think we are kind of in those times right now. You cannot think, you cannot have curiosity if you're going to do it like you did 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago. You have to think differently. And I don't know what's in the backpack of your life that needs to be changed, needs to be even dropped off so that you can move to higher ground, so that you can take on this fire again. And my friends, we are in a fire right now. And we need mobility, we need curiosity, and we need men and women in this business world that are going to go out and do it. And I think the ones in this room can do it. Thank you very much.